Chapter 13 All models are wrong, but some are useful. George Box, Statistician Jim Simons faced a growing list of problems. He had one possible solution. Staffers were squabbling, and two key scientists had bolted, possibly taking Medallion's secrets with them. Simons had concerns about his remaining employees as well. Yes, the hedge fund, which managed over $5 billion, continued to score strong annual gains of about 25% after fees. In 2004, Medallion's sharp ratio even hit 7.5, a jaw-dropping figure that dwarfed that of its rivals. But Simons worried about his employees slacking. Renaissance had hired dozens of mathematicians and scientists over the course of several years, and Simons felt pressure to keep them busy and productive. He needed to find them a new challenge. All these scientists are wealthier than they ever imagined, Simons told a colleague. How do I motivate them? Simons had another, more personal reason to seek a new project. He continued to struggle with intense, enduring emotional pain from the sudden death of his son, Nicholas. A few years earlier, Simons had seemed eager to retire from the trading business. Now he was desperate for distractions. Simons had no interest in shaking up Medallion's operations. Once a year, the fund returned its gains to its investors, mostly the firm's own employees, ensuring that it didn't get too big. If Medallion managed much more money, Simons, Henry Laufer, and others were convinced that its performance, still tied to various short-term price fluctuations, would suffer. The size limit meant Medallion sometimes identified more market aberrations and phenomena than it could put to use. The discarded trading signals usually involved longer-term opportunities. Simons's scientists were more confident about short-term signals, partly because more data was available to help confirm them. A one-day trading signal can incorporate data points for every trading day of the year, for instance, while a one-year signal depends on just one annual data point. Nonetheless, the researchers were pretty sure they could make solid money if they ever had a chance to develop algorithms focused on a longer holding period. That gave Simons an idea. Why not start a new hedge fund to take advantage of these extraneous, longer-term predictive signals? The returns likely wouldn't be as good as medallions, Simons realized, given that a new fund wouldn't be able to take advantage of the firm's more dependable short-term trades. But such a fund likely could manage a lot more money than medallion. A mega-fund holding investments for long periods wouldn't incur the trading costs that a similarly-sized fast-trading fund would, for example. Relying on longer-term trades would also prevent the new fund from cannibalizing Medallion's returns. Researching and then rolling out a new hedge fund would represent a fresh challenge to galvanize the firm, Simons concluded. There was an added bonus to the idea, too. Simons was thinking about finding a buyer for Renaissance. Maybe not for the entire firm, but for a piece of it. Simons was approaching 70 years of age, and he thought it wouldn't be a bad idea to sell some of his equity in the firm, though he wasn't willing to tell anyone. A giant new hedge fund, generating dependable, recurring income from its fees and returns, would carry special appeal for potential buyers. Some at Renaissance didn't see the point of such a venture. It likely would disrupt their work and lead to an influx of nosy investors traipsing through the hallways. 
but Simons had the last word, and he wanted the fund. His researchers settled on one that would trade with little human intervention, like Medallion, yet would hold investments a month or even longer. It would incorporate some of Renaissance's usual tactics, such as finding correlations and patterns in prices, but would add other, more fundamental strategies, including buying inexpensive shares based on price-earnings ratios, balance sheet data, and other information. After thorough testing, the scientists determined the new hedge fund could beat the stock market by a few percentage points each year, while generating lower volatility than the overall market. It would produce the kinds of steady returns that hold special appeal for pension funds and other large institutions. Even better, the prospective fund could score those returns even if it managed as much as $100 billion, they calculated, an amount that would make it history's largest hedge fund. As a newly hired sales team began pitching the fund, named the Renaissance Institutional Equities Fund, or RIEF, they made it clear the fund wouldn't resemble Medallion. Some investors ignored the disclaimer, considering it a mere formality. Same firm, same researchers, same risk and trading models, same returns, they figured. By 2005, Medallion sported annualized returns of 38.4% over the previous 15 years, after those enormous fees, a performance that RIEF sales documents made sure to note. The new fund's returns would have to be somewhat close to Medallion's results, the investors figured. Plus, RIEF was only charging a 1% management fee and 10% of all performance of any gains, a bargain compared to Medallion. RIEF opened its doors in the summer of 2005. A year later, with the new fund already a few percentage points ahead of the broader stock market, investors started lining up to hand their money over. Soon, they had plowed $14 billion into RIEF. Some prospective investors seemed most excited by the prospect of meeting Simons, the celebrity investor, or his secretive staffers, who seemed blessed with magical trading abilities. When David Dwyer, a senior sales executive, led tours of Renaissance's campus for potential clients, he'd stop and point out scientists and mathematicians as they went about their daily routines, as if they were exotic, rarely-seen creatures in their natural habitat. In that conference room, our scientists review their latest predictive signals. Ooh. That's where the crucial peer review process happens. Ah. Over there, Jim Simons meets with his top executives to map strategy. Wow. As the visitors pass the kitchen area, mathematicians sometimes wandered by to toast a bagel or grab a muffin eliciting excited nudging from the group and some alarm from staffers unaccustomed to seeing outsiders staring at them. Next, Dwyer took his visitors downstairs to see Renaissance's data group, where over 30 PhDs and others, including Chinese nationals and a few newly hired female scientists, were usually deep in thought near whiteboards filled with intricate formulas. The job of these scientists, Dwyer explained, was to take thousands of outside data feeds pumping nonstop into the company and scrub them clean, removing errors and irregularities so the mathematicians upstairs could use the information to uncover price patterns. Dwyer's tour usually concluded back upstairs in Renaissance's computer room, which was the size of a couple of tennis courts. There, stacks of servers, 
and long rows of eight-foot-tall metal cages were linked together, blinking and quietly processing thousands of trades, even as his guests watched. The air in the room had a different feel and smell, brittle and dry, as if they could feel volts of electricity pumping. The room helped underscore Dwyer's message. Renaissance's mathematical models and scientific approach were its backbone. Rarely did they come and not invest, Dwyer says. Sometimes, Simons or Brown joined client presentations to say hello and field questions. These meetings sometimes veered in unexpected directions. Once, an RIEF salesman arranged a lunch at Renaissance's Long Island office for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the largest foundation dedicated to funding public health initiatives. As the foundation's investment team entered a big conference room and shook hands with RIEF sales staffers, they distributed business cards embossed with the Wood Johnson motto, Building a Culture of Health. The lunch went well, and the foundation appeared close to writing a big check to RIEF. To cap things off, a thick, iced vanilla cake was placed in the middle of the table. Everyone eyed the dessert, preparing for a taste. Just then, Simons walked in, setting the room ablaze. Jim, can we take a picture? asked one of the health organization's investment professionals. As the small talk got underway, Simons began making odd motions with his right hand. The foundation executives had no clue what was happening, but nervous RIEF staffers did. When Simons was desperate for a smoke, he scrabbled at his left breast pocket, where he kept his merits. There was nothing in there, though, so Simons called his assistant on an intercom system, asking her to bring him a cigarette. Do you mind if I smoke? Simons asked his guests. Before they knew it, Simons was lighting up. Soon, fumes were choking the room. The Robert Wood Johnson representatives, still dedicated to building a culture of health, were stunned. Simons didn't seem to notice or care. After some awkward chit-chat, he looked to put out his cigarette, now down to a burning butt, but he couldn't locate an ashtray. Now the RIEF staffers were sweating. Simons was known to ash pretty much anywhere he pleased in the office, even on the desks of underlings and in their coffee mugs. Simons was in Renaissance's swankiest conference room, though, and he couldn't find an appropriate receptacle. Finally, Simons spotted the frosted cake. He stood up, reached across the table, and buried his cigarette deep in the icing. As the cake sizzled, Simons walked out, the mouths of his guests agape. The Renaissance salesmen were crestfallen, convinced their lucrative sale had been squandered. The foundation's executives recovered their poise quickly, however, eagerly signing a big check. It was going to take more than choking on cigarette smoke and a ruined vanilla cake to keep them from the new fund. Other than making the occasional slip-up, Simons was an effective salesman, a world-class mathematician with a rare ability to connect with those who couldn't do stochastic differential equations. Simons told entertaining stories, had a dry sense of humor, and held interests far afield from science and money-making. He also demonstrated unusual loyalty and concern for others, qualities the investors may have sensed. Once, Dennis Sullivan, returning to Stony Brook after two decades in France, drove to Renaissance's parking lot to talk with Simons. The two spent hours speaking about math formulas, but Simons sensed Sullivan was struggling with a different kind of problem. It turned out that Sullivan, 
who had six children from multiple marriages over 40 years, was fielding financial requests from his kids and was having difficulty deciding how to treat each fairly. Simon sat silently, considering the dilemma before offering a Solomonic answer in just two words. Eventually, equal, Simon said. The answer satisfied Sullivan, who departed feeling relieved. The meeting cemented their friendship, and the two began spending more time collaborating on mathematics research papers. Simons could be frank about his own personal life, which also endeared him to investors and friends. When asked how someone so devoted to science could smoke so much, in defiance of statistical possibilities, Simons answered that his genes had been tested, and he had the unique ability to handle a habit that proved harmful to most others. When you get past a certain age, you should be in the clear, he said. Brown was almost as smooth and capable with investors, but Mercer was another story. RIEF's marketers tried to keep him away from clients, lest he laugh at an unexpected point in a conversation or do something else off-putting. One time, when neither Simons nor Brown was around to greet representatives of a West Coast endowment, Mercer joined the meeting. Asked how the firm made so much money, Mercer offered an explanation. So we have a signal, Mercer began, his colleagues nodding nervously. Sometimes it tells us to buy Chrysler, sometimes it tells us to sell. Instant silence and raised eyebrows. Chrysler hadn't existed as a company since being acquired by German automaker Daimler back in 1998. Mercer didn't seem to know. He was a quant, so he didn't actually pay attention to the companies he traded. The endowment overlooked the flub, becoming RIEF's latest investor. By the spring of 2007, it was getting hard to keep investors away. $35 billion had been plowed into RIEF, making it one of the world's largest hedge funds. Renaissance had to institute a $2 billion per month limit on new investments. Yes, the fund was built to handle $100 billion, but not all at once. Simons made plans for other new funds, initiating work on the Renaissance Institutional Futures Fund, RIFF, to trade futures contracts on bonds, currencies, and other assets in a long-term style. A new batch of scientists was hired, while staffers from other parts of the company lent a hand fulfilling Simons' goal of energizing and unifying staffers. He still had another pressing problem to address. In late spring 2007, Simons was in his office in a midtown New York City building, a 41-story glass and steel structure, steps from Grand Central Terminal, staring at Israel Englander, a graying 57-year-old billionaire known for his distinctive tortoiseshell glasses. The men were tense, miserable, and angry at each other. It wasn't their first confrontation. Four years earlier, researchers Pavel Wolfbane and Alexander Belopolsky had quit Renaissance to trade stocks for Englander's hedge fund, Millennium Management. Furious, Simon stormed into Englander's office one day, demanding that he fire the traders, a request that had offended Englander. Show me the proof, he told Simons at the time asking for evidence that Wolfbane and Belopolsky had taken Renaissance's proprietary information. Privately, Englander wondered if Simons' true fear was the possibility of additional departures from his firm, rather than any theft. Simons wouldn't share much with his rival. He and Renaissance sued Englander's firm, as well as Wolfbane and Belopolsky, 
while the traders brought countersuits against Renaissance. Amid the hostilities, Wolfbane and Belopolsky set up their own quantitative trading system, racking up about $100 million of profits while becoming, as Englander told a colleague, some of the most successful traders Englander had encountered. At Renaissance, Wolfbane and Belopolsky had signed non-disclosure agreements prohibiting them from using or sharing medallion secrets. They had refused to sign non-compete agreements, though, viewing the firm as underhanded for slipping them in a pile of other papers to be signed, according to a colleague. With no signed non-compete agreement to worry about, Englander figured he had the right to hire the researchers as long as they didn't use any of Renaissance's secrets. Sitting in a plush chair across from Simon's that spring day, Englander said he hadn't been privy to the details of how his hires traded. Wolfbane and Belopolsky had told Englander and others that they relied on open-source software and the insights of academic papers and other financial literature, not Renaissance's intellectual property. Why should Englander fire them? Simons turned furious. He was also worried. If Wolfbane and Belopolsky weren't stopped, their trading could eat into Medallion's profits. The defections might pave the way for others to bolt. There was also a principle involved, Simons felt. They stole from me. Evidence had begun to mount that Wolfbane and Belopolsky may, in fact, have taken Medallion's intellectual property. One independent expert concluded that the researchers used much of the same source code as Medallion. They also relied on a similar mathematical model to measure the market impact of their trades. At least one expert witness became so skeptical of Wolfbane and Belopolsky's explanations that he refused to testify on their behalf. One of the strategies Wolfbane and Belopolsky employed was even called Henry's signal. It seemed more than a coincidence that Renaissance used a similar strategy with the exact same name developed by Henry Laufer, Simons's longtime partner. Simons and Englander didn't make much headway that day, but a few months later, they cut a deal. Englander's firm agreed to terminate Wolfbane and Belopolsky and pay Renaissance $20 million. Some within Renaissance were incensed. The renegade researchers had made much more than $20 million trading for Englander, and after taking a break of several years, they'd be free to resume their activities. But Simons was relieved to put the dispute behind him and to send a message of warning to those at the firm who might think of following in the footsteps of the wayward researchers. It seemed nothing could stop Simons and Renaissance. RIEF was off to a great start, and Medallion was still printing money. Peter Brown was so cocksure that he placed a bet with a colleague. If Medallion scored a 100% return in 2007, Brown would get his colleague's new Mercedes E-Class car. Brown's competitive streak extended to other parts of his life. Lean and six feet tall, Brown challenged colleagues to squash matches and tests of strength in the company's gym. When Simons brought employees and their families to a resort in Bermuda for a vacation, many lounged around a swimming pool wearing knee-high black socks and sandals, watching a water volleyball game. Suddenly, a commotion disrupted the peace. Someone in the pool was lunging for the ball, spraying water in his teammates' eyes, his elbows dangerously close to the face of a nearby child. Who's the maniac? An alarmed mother asked, edging closer to the pool. Oh, that's just Peter, a staffer said. 
Both Brown and Mercer dealt in logic, not feelings. Many of the scientists and mathematicians they hired were just as brilliant, driven, and seemingly detached from human emotion. On the way home from the Bermuda trip, as staffers lined up to board the return flight, someone suggested they clear the way for a pregnant woman. Some Renaissance scientists refused. They didn't have anything against the woman, but if she truly wanted to board early, she logically would have arrived early, they said. It was like being with a bunch of Sheldons, says an outsider on the trip, referring to the character on the television show The Big Bang Theory. As he assumed more responsibility, Brown spent more time dealing with marketing executives and others who hadn't experienced his brusque, erratic style. Like an adolescent, Brown often was irreverent, even mischievous, especially when the fund was doing well. But he became unhinged about relatively small things. Once, during a meeting, an underling inadvertently placed his phone on vibrate mode rather than turn it off. As Brown spoke, the phone went off, shaking and toppling a stack of books. Brown's eyes widened. He stared at the phone and then at the employee. Then he went berserk. Get that fucking thing out of here, Brown screamed at the top of his lungs. Take it easy, Peter, said Mark Silber, the chief financial officer. Everything will be all right. Mercer also had an ability to calm Brown. Just being around Mercer seemed to put Brown in better spirits. Mercer didn't interact very much with most colleagues, whistling at times during the day, but he frequently huddled with Brown to produce ideas to improve the trading models. One was emotional and outgoing, the other taciturn and circumspect, a bit like the comedy duo Penn and Teller, but much less funny. In July 2007, RIEF experienced a minor loss, but the medallion fund was up 50% for the year, and Brown appeared positioned to win his colleague's Mercedes. Elsewhere in the economy, troubles were brewing for so-called subprime home mortgages, the kinds written by aggressive lenders to U.S. borrowers with scuffed or limited credit histories. Worrywarts predicted the difficulties might spread, but few thought a corner of the mortgage market was capable of crippling the broader stock or bond markets. Either way, Brown and Mercer's statistical arbitrage stock trades were market neutral, so the jitters were unlikely to affect returns. On Friday, August 3rd, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plummeted 281 points, a loss attributed to concern about the health of investment bank Bear Stearns. The drop didn't seem like a big deal, though. Most senior investors were on vacation, after all, so reading into the losses didn't seem worthwhile. By that summer, a group of quantitative hedge funds had emerged dominant. Inspired by Simons' success, most had their own market-neutral strategies just as reliant on computer models and automated trades. In Morgan Stanley's Midtown Manhattan headquarters, Peter Muller, a blue-eyed quant who played piano at a local club in his free time, led a team managing $6 billion for a division of the bank called PDT. In Greenwich, Connecticut, Clifford Asness, a University of Chicago PhD, helped lead a $39 billion quantitative hedge fund firm called AQR Capital Management. And in Chicago, Ken Griffin, who in the late 1980s had installed a satellite dish on his dormitory roof at Harvard to get up to the second quotes, was using high-powered computers to make statistical arbitrage trades and other moves at his $13 billion firm, Citadel.
On the afternoon of Monday, August 6th, all the quant traders were hit with sudden, serious losses. At AQR, Asnes snapped shut the blinds of the glass partition of his corner office and began calling contacts to understand what was happening. Word emerged that a smaller quant fund called Tyke Capital was in trouble, while a division of Goldman Sachs that invested in a systematic fashion was also suffering. It wasn't clear who was doing the selling or why it was impacting so many firms that presumed their strategies unique. Later, academics and others would posit that a fire sale by at least one quant fund, along with abrupt moves by others to slash their borrowing, perhaps as their own investors raised cash to deal with struggling mortgage investments, had sparked a brutal downturn that became known as the quant quake. During the stock market crash of 1987, investors were failed by sophisticated models. In 1998, long-term capital saw historic losses. Algorithmic traders braced for their latest fiasco. It's bad, Cliff, Michael Mendelssohn, AQR's head of global trading, told Asnes. This has the feel of a liquidation. For most of that Monday, Simons wasn't focused on stocks. He and his family were in Boston following the death and funeral of his mother, Marcia. In the afternoon, Simons and his cousin, Robert Laurie, who ran Renaissance's futures trading business, flew back to Long Island on Simons' Gulfstream G450. On board, they learned Medallion and RIEF were getting crushed. Simons told Laurie not to worry. We always have very good days after difficult ones, he said. Tuesday was worse, however. Simons and his colleagues watched their computer screens flash red for no apparent reason. Brown's mood turned grim. I don't know what the hell is going on, but it's not good, Brown told someone. On Wednesday, things got scary. Simons, Brown, Mercer, and about six others hustled into a central conference room, grabbing seats around a table. They immediately focused on a series of charts affixed to a wall detailing the magnitude of the firm's losses and at what point Medallion's bank lenders would make margin calls demanding additional collateral to avoid selling the fund's equity positions. One basket of stocks had already plunged so far that Renaissance had to come up with additional collateral to forestall a sale. If its positions suffered much deeper losses, Medallion would have to provide its lenders with even more collateral to prevent massive stock sales and losses that were even more dramatic. The conference room was close by an open atrium where groups of researchers met to work. As the meeting continued, nervous staffers studied the faces of those entering and leaving the room, gauging the level of desperation among the executives. Inside, a battle had begun. Seven years earlier, during the 2000 technology stock meltdown, Brown didn't know what to do. This time, he was sure. The sell-off wouldn't last long, he argued. Renaissance should stick with its trading system, Brown said, maybe even add positions. Their system, programmed to buy and sell on its own, was already doing just that, seizing on the chaos and expanding some positions. This is an opportunity, Brown said. Bob Mercer seemed in agreement. Trust the models, let them run, Henry Laufer added. Simon shook his head. He didn't know if his firm could survive much more pain. He was scared. If losses grew and they couldn't come up with enough collateral, the banks would sell Medallion's positions and suffer their own huge losses. If that happened, 
no one would deal with Simons's fund again. It would be a likely death blow, even if Renaissance suffered smaller financial losses than its bank lenders. Medallion needed to sell, not buy, he told his colleagues. Our job is to survive, Simon said. If we're wrong, we can always add positions later. Brown seemed shocked by what he was hearing. He had absolute faith in the algorithms he and his fellow scientists had developed. Simons was overruling him in a public way and taking issue with the trading system itself, it seemed. On Thursday, Medallion began reducing equity positions to build cash. Back in the conference room, Simons, Brown, and Mercer stared at a single computer screen that was updating the firm's profits and losses. They wanted to see how their selling would influence the market. When the first batch of shares were sold, the market felt the blow, dropping further, causing still more losses. Later, it happened again. In silence, Simon stood and stared. Problems grew for all the leading quant firms. PDT lost $600 million of Morgan Stanley's money over just two days. Now the selling was spreading to the overall market. That Thursday, the S&P 500 dropped 3%, and the Dow fell 387 points. Medallion already had lost more than $1 billion that week, a stunning 20%. RIEF, too, was plunging, down nearly $3 billion, or about 10%. An eerie quiet enveloped Renaissance's lunchroom, as researchers and others sat in silence, wondering if the firm would survive. Researchers stayed up past midnight, trying to make sense of the problems. Are our models broken? It turned out that the firm's rivals shared about a quarter of its positions. Renaissance was plagued with the same illness infecting so many others. Some rank-and-file senior scientists were upset, not so much by the losses, but because Simons had interfered with the trading system and reduced positions. Some took the decision as a personal affront, a sign of ideological weakness and a lack of conviction in their labor. You're dead wrong, a senior researcher emailed Simons. You believe in the system or you don't, another scientist said with some disgust. Simon said he did believe in the trading system, but the market's losses were unusual, more than 20 standard deviations from the average, a level of loss most had never come close to experiencing. How far can it go, Simons wondered. Renaissance's lenders were even more fearful. If Medallion kept losing money, Deutsche Bank and Barclays likely would be facing billions of dollars of losses. Few at the banks were even aware of the basket option arrangements. Such sudden, deep losses likely would shock investors and regulators, raising questions about the bank's management and overall health. Martin Malloy, the Barclays executive who dealt most closely with Renaissance, picked up the phone to call Brown, hoping for some reassurance. Brown sounded harried, but in control. Others were beginning to panic. That Friday, Dwyer, the senior executive hired two years earlier to sell RIEF to institutions, left the office to pitch representatives of a reinsurance company. With RIEF down about 10% for the year, even as the overall stock market was up, customers were up in arms. More important for Dwyer, he had sold his home upon joining Renaissance and invested the proceeds in Medallion. Like others at the firm, he had also borrowed money from Deutsche Bank to invest in the fund. Now Dwyer was down nearly a million dollars. 
Dwyer had battled Crohn's disease in his youth. The symptoms had abated, but now he was dealing with sharp aches, fever, and terrible abdominal cramping. His stress had triggered a return of the disease. After the meeting, Dwyer drove to Long Island Sound to board a ferry to Massachusetts to meet his family for the weekend. As Dwyer parked his car and waited to hand his keys to an attendant, he imagined an end to his agony. Just let the brakes fail. Dwyer was in an emotional freefall. Back in the office, though, signs were emerging that Medallion was stabilizing. When the fund again sold positions that morning, the market seemed to handle the trades without weakening. Some attributed the market's turn to a buy order that day by Asness of AQR. I think we'll get through this, Simons told a colleague. Let's stop lightening up. Simons was ordering the firm to halt its selling. By Monday morning, Medallion and RIEF were both making money again, as were most other big quant traders, as if a fever had broken. Dwyer felt deep relief. Later, some at Renaissance complained the gains would have been larger had Simons not overridden their trading system. We gave up a lot of extra profit, a staffer told him. I'd make the same decision again, Simons responded. Before long, Renaissance had regained its footing. Growing turbulence in global markets aided Medallion's signals, helping the fund score gains of 86% in 2007, nearly enough for Brown to win the Mercedes. The newer RIEF fund lost a bit of money that year, but the loss didn't seem a huge deal. By early 2008, problems for subprime mortgages had infected almost every corner of the U.S. and global stock and bond markets. But Medallion was thriving from the chaos, as usual, rising over 20% in the year's first few months. Simons revived the idea of selling as much as 20% of Renaissance. In May 2008, Simons, Brown, and a few other Renaissance executives flew to Cotter to meet representatives of the country's sovereign wealth fund to discuss selling a piece of Renaissance. Because they arrived on a Friday, a day of prayer for Muslims, their meetings couldn't be scheduled until the next day. The hotel's concierge recommended the group try dune bashing, a popular form of off-roading in which four-wheel drive vehicles climb and then slide down steep sand dunes at high speeds and dangerous angles, much like a desert roller coaster. It was a brutally hot day, and Brown and others hit the hotel's swimming pool. But Simons headed out into the desert with Stephen Robert, an industry veteran and former chief executive of the investment firm Oppenheimer, whom Simons had hired to oversee Renaissance's marketing and strategic direction. Before long, they were riding dunes that seemed as high as mountains at such breakneck speeds that their vehicle almost tipped over. Simons turned pale. Jim, are you okay? Robert shouted over the vehicle's engine. We could get killed, Simons yelled back, fear in his voice. Relax, they do this all the time. Robert told him. What if this tips over? Simons responded. People think I'm pretty smart. I'm going to die in the dumbest way possible. For another five minutes, Simons was gripped with terror. Then, suddenly, he relaxed, color returning to his face. I got it, Simons yelled to Robert. There's a principle in physics. We can't tip over unless the tires have traction. We're in sand, so the tires have nothing to grab onto. Simons flashed a smile, proud he'd figured out a most relevant scientific problem. Glenn Whitney wasn't nearly as relaxed. 
After the dinner at Jim Simons's home, where it was decided that Alexei Kononenko wouldn't be punished for his behavior, Whitney became dejected. He and Magerman had promised they would quit, but few at Renaissance believed them. Who foregoes tens of millions of dollars a year over an annoying colleague and worries about a firm's culture? Whitney was serious, though. He saw the Kononenko decision as the last straw. Earlier, Whitney had protested Simons' decision to kick non-employees out of medallion. He wasn't sure a hedge fund added much to society if it just made money for employees. Once, Renaissance had seemed like a close-knit university department. Now the sharp elbows were getting to him. In the summer of 2008, Whitney announced he was accepting a leadership role at the National Museum of Mathematics, or MoMath, the first museum in North America devoted to celebrating mathematics. Colleagues mocked him. If Whitney really wanted to improve society, some told him, he'd stay, accumulate more wealth, and then give it away later in life. You're leaving because you want to feel good about yourself, one colleague said. I have a right to personal happiness, Whitney responded. That's selfish, a staffer sniffed. Whitney quit. David Magerman also had had enough. A few years earlier, he had experienced a midlife crisis, partly due to the shocking September 11th terrorist attacks. Searching for more meaning in his life, Magerman traveled to Israel, returning more committed to Judaism. Not only was Kononenko still at the firm, but now he was co-running the entire equities business. Magerman couldn't take it anymore. Magerman moved with his wife and three children from Long Island to Gladwine, Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia, searching for a calmer and more spiritual lifestyle. As the global economy deteriorated throughout 2008 and financial markets tumbled, interest in a stake in Renaissance evaporated. But the Medallion Fund thrived in the chaos, soaring 82% that year, helping Simons make over $2 billion in personal profits. The enormous gains sparked a call from a House of Representatives committee asking Simons to testify as part of its investigation into the causes of the financial collapse. Simons prepped diligently with his public relations advisor, Jonathan Gasthalter. With fellow hedge fund managers George Soros to his right and John Paulson on his left, Simons told Congress that he would back a push to force hedge funds to share information with regulators and that he supported higher taxes for hedge fund managers. Simons was something of an afterthought, however both at the hearings and in the finance industry itself. All eyes were on Paulson, Soros, and a few other investors who, unlike Simons, had successfully anticipated the financial meltdown. They did it with old-fashioned investment research, a reminder of the enduring potential and appeal of those traditional methods. Paulson had first grown concerned about the runaway housing market in 2005, when a colleague named Paolo Pellegrini developed a price chart indicating that the housing market was 40% overpriced. Paulson knew opportunity was at hand. This is our bubble, Paulson told Pellegrini. This is proof. Paulson and Pellegrini purchased protection for the riskiest mortgages in the form of credit default swaps, resulting in a $20 billion windfall over 2007 and 2008. George Soros, the veteran hedge fund investor, placed his own CDS bets, scoring over a billion dollars in profits. Baby-faced 39-year-old David Einhorn won his own acclaim at a May 2008 industry conference when he accused investment bank Lehman Brothers 
of using accounting tricks to avoid billions of dollars of real estate-related losses. Einhorn, who later attributed his success to his critical thinking skill, was vindicated later that year when Lehman declared bankruptcy. The lesson was obvious. One could outsmart the market. It just took diligence, intelligence, and a whole lot of gumption. Simons's quantitative models, nerdy mathematicians, and geeky scientists, while effective, were too hard to understand. Their methods too difficult to pull off, most decided. In 2008, after RIEF dropped about 17%, Renaissance's researchers waved the losses off. They were within their simulations and seemed puny compared to the S&P 500's 37% drubbing, including dividends, that year. The scientists became concerned in 2009, however, when RIEF lost over 6% and the S&P 500 soared 26.5%. All those investors who had convinced themselves that RIEF would generate medallion-like returns suddenly realized the firm was serious when it said it was a very different fund. Others grumbled that Medallion was still killing it, while RIEF was struggling, believing something unfair was going on. No longer in awe of Simons, RIEF investors peppered the 71-year-old with tough questions in a May 2009 conference call. Simons wrote to his investors that the fund had suffered a performance onslaught during an extreme market rally. We certainly understand our clients' discomfort, he said. Investors began to flee RIEF, which soon was down to less than $5 billion. A second fund Simons had started to trade stock futures also took on water and lost investors, while new clients dried up. No client on earth would touch us, says Dwyer, the senior salesman. A year later, after some more underwhelming performance from RIEF, Simons, who had turned 72, decided it was time to pass the torch at the firm to Brown and Mercer. Medallion was still on fire. The fund, now managing $10 billion, had posted average returns of about 45% a year after fees since 1988, returns that outpaced those of Warren Buffett and every other investing star. At that point, Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway had gained 20% annually since he took over in 1965. But Brown told a reporter the firm wasn't even sure it would keep RIEF or RIFF going, the latest sign investors had soured on the quantitative approach. If we assess that it's something that's not going to sell, then we'll decide it's not good to be in that business, Brown said. As for Simons, he had devoted more than two decades to building remarkable wealth. Now he was going to spend it.